This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House is taking new steps to support clean energy in American manufacturing. The Biden administration wants to revitalize local economies, lower consumer prices, and boost global American competitiveness. A White House fact sheet says that the industrial sector is also essential to tackling the climate crisis by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The Department of Justice has created a three-year plan to implement zero trust architecture in their internal systems. This goal comes after the White House released a zero trust strategy for federal agencies last month. FCW reports that the Justice Department has begun taking steps in this plan by monitoring users with privileged access and ensuring identity proofing. The Defense Department is facing multiple challenges at once when it comes to strategic competition with China. That's according to the Government Accountability Office, which released a snapshot report detailing how the DOD can address China's growing economic, diplomatic, military and technological power. The report says the Pentagon can better focus on strategic competition with China by mitigating threats to mobility and strengthening itself against cybersecurity threats. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are priorities across the entire government, and that includes the U.S. Army and Navy. Both services have offices devoted to the promotion and implementation of those goals. Anselm Beach is Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Diversity and Inclusion, and Charles Barber is Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs for the Navy. Charles, I want to start with you. Um, give us a quick um, explanation or definition of those three terms, diversity, equity, inclusion. Sure, um, and I'll keep them very concise. I think diversity, just recognizing and celebrating that presence of difference. Equity, uh, when you think about equity, I think you need to think about the difference between equity and equality. Uh, equity being how do we assess those policies and processes to ensure uh, that we achieve those equality of outcomes that we want to achieve. And inclusion, uh, creating that environment, that culture, where everybody can show up and be their true authentic selves uh, and reach their full potential. Uh, but I would also add, uh, when you have conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, meritocracy is also a piece that should be included also. Uh, because uh, with Secretary Del Toro, uh, the Commandant, uh, the CNO, one of our key uh, themes is to ensure that diversity and meritocracy are harmonic principles that don't compromise one for the other. And with the way that we continuously assess barriers and equity, uh, we're doing just that. All right. And Anselm, let me ask you about uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin. He's the first African-American Secretary of Defense. What has that meant to your work? So uh, I think it's been a historic time in Department of Defense, right? So we've started with uh, Secretary Austin. We've also had Secretary Wormuth, who is the first woman who is the Secretary of the Army. And I think what this really actually brings uh, to, to bear is that um, as Chuck talked about meritocracy, about you know the value of merit, uh, performance and, and I think uh, what, it, what it shows is that people once provided opportunities could really excel across all government and I think we're in an incredibly important time when we think about how we compete for talent the Department of Defense is competing for talent with everyone else and, and it's also critical to the, our national security to be able to pull from all facets of America 
to optimize the talent uh, for the defense of the nation. You know, Chuck, it's said a lot that diversity is our strength, that it's critical to mission success, but how does it make the U.S. military stronger and more effective? Well, studies show, Mimi, that diverse organizations perform higher. Um, when you think about how you can link DE&I efforts to culture, um, how do you improve adaptability? Um, how do you improve consistency? Um, how do you improve institutional learning? Um, and if you leverage diversity properly, uh, you can transition organizations to be much more higher performing organizations and also becoming learning organizations, you know, and so not, not just looking at root cause learning, I mean, root cause analysis, but how do you get towards root cause learning? And at those diverse perspectives, they help you to get to just that. I, so, I yes, go ahead. I could add to that. And I, I, I could make this very granular. Uh, for the United States Army, we were in the business of protecting the nation. We were in the war fighting business. And I think as you think about war fighting, uh, this goes directly to the ability to perform multi-domain operations, which is the future of, 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 of warfare. And what it means is, is that the battlefield is now a lot more complex, and we need new ways of thinking. How do we engage um, you know, new ways of fighting uh, across that battlefield? And for that, we need new, new ways of thinking. Uh, and we need, new, we need new perspectives. This also cuts across the language spectrum. When we, when we engage with, uh, with, with foreign enemies, how do we understand the culture, how, the psyche of those warriors? That is part of what diversity gives us. Okay. Yeah, so really diversity becomes an operational imperative. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Chuck, what would you say are the biggest barriers to implementing diversity, equity, uh, inclusivity? Is, it, is this a, a cultural issue? Absolutely. Um, and, and I will tell you, uh, Department of the Navy, Marine Corps, and Operational Navy are really trying to look at this, this space, not just from a compliance perspective like we have in the past, but from a culture perspective. Um, and, and, and I know we'll get to the point we get a, get a chance to talk about some of our, our key initiatives, but. Um, really, th this is a cultural issue. Uh, how are we really looking at this from a cultural perspective so we don't continue to have the same conversations 15 or 20 years from now? So it absolutely, it is a cultural issue. Well, Anselm, it's very easy to have a policy, but how do you change culture, especially in an organization like the military? A absolutely. And, and, and I think part of, uh, to answer part of what you asked earlier, I, I think we are currently engaged as a nation in a passionate conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think part of the passionate conversation and, and why it becomes hard to operationalize is because of the ways that we've, been, we've thought about this. And we've thought about it in a very one-dimensional way for, for a long time. So as we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Army, it's about a framework that we build cohesive teams in inclusive environments to fight and win the nation's wars. So it cuts across just representation, but it moves how we get people from across the entire spectrum of the United States, not only to be reflected in our army, but to move to full participation. Uh, Secretary Warmoth, in her, in her new objectives, really talks about, you know, people. And, and, and for the Army, we think about, you know, the three main priorities, which are people, modernization, and readiness. Diversity, equity, and inclusion really is a bridge that connects all those three. Chuck, he just mentioned cohesion. So does diversity impact cohesion? Have you seen a, a negative impact on unit cohesion? It absolutely affects cohesion. Uh, and I think with how we've launched listening sessions across the Department of the Navy, as we've kind of used that uh, input from sailors and Marines across the department, 
um, we have learned that, that it does as absolutely impact cohesion, absolutely. In a good way or a bad way? Uh, I, I think both. I mean, I, I think in some cases where you have constructive conversations about these topics, um, I think you start to build cultural intelligence where it does uh, improve uh, cohesion. But in some of those instances where those conversations uh, may not be quite as constructive, uh, we start to build cultural arrogance. And so in those instances, it, it doesn't help with cohesion. So, so I think it's a little bit of both. So Chuck talked about listening sessions. We also do listening sessions. So we spent... And we will get to that okay. in the next session. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Coming next, we continue speaking with Anselm Beach and Charles Barber about diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives for the Army and Navy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. I'm here with Anselm Beach, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Diversity and Inclusion, and Charles Barber is Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs for the Navy. Anselm, you were just about to tell me about um, a program called Project Inclusion and Listening Tours. Tell me about that. So Project Inclusion is an uh, umbrella term that we use for uh, the strategic initiatives that we have uh, in the Army. It started with uh, the Army People Strategy, which is a strategy that overlies all things people for the Army. And included in that is the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Annex to the Army People Strategy, which is a five-year strategy to drive to diversity in states. So that kind of uh, connection and integration. And a, as a part of Project Inclusion, we started Your Voice Matters Listening Sessions. And um, Your Voice Matters Listening Session um, really is the way that we engage soldiers and civilians across our Army to understand their lived experiences, their stories, and to understand the barriers so we could shape policy and initiatives better so that they could be operated, uh, they could be, uh, operated at the local level, right? Um, so here's the thing. We have now gone to um, 27 installations across the Army, across the world, and we have conducted almost 200 sessions, engaged almost 10,000 soldiers and civilians. That really demonstrates um, you know, the Army's intent to really hear from the force, and it really ties into Secretary Walmart's uh, initiatives, which, uh, which she outlines um, for uh, positive uh, command climate and also how we get to harmful behaviors. And so what did you hear? What was the biggest thing that you heard? I mean, that's a lot of listening, 10,000 people. It, it is a lot of listening. So one of the things that we, we, that we heard is that um, leadership is also is very important in driving these initiatives. So how does leader, uh, how, how, how leaders at the local levels model behaviors? How do they ensure that they're driving integration and inclusion so that we could optimize talents? Those are some of the big things uh, that we get from the listening session. We also have analyzed um, across 20 themes, so starting from leadership all the way to, um, to in, uh, how people get promoted. So it, it, it's a fascinating study and a barometer of what's happening in real time. So Chuck, I want to ask you about measuring success because it's one thing to have initiatives, but how do you know it's working? Absolutely. Um, we, fortunately, we've had great support from Secretary Del Toro, CNO Gilday, uh, and Commandant General Berger. Uh, and, and what that has allowed us to do is to really de develop um, a very rigorous and analytical tool that we call our underrepresentation framework. And so basically what we've done is we've taken every military and civilian occupational specialty and we've developed a civilian analog with data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
and the Department of Labor. Uh, so what this does for us, those 100 plus initiatives, uh, it allows us to really see how we're using data to inform policy changes to really improve underrepresentation. You know, I wanted to ask you about diversity in the officer corps, right? Uh, so officers uh, versus enlisted, and then also on the civilian side with the senior um, service, the SES, as opposed to the GS scale. Are you looking at that? Absolutely, uh, and I would also add that the entire Don DEI framework is a total force framework. So it's not just focused on just the military side of the house. Uh, it also includes the civilian side of the house. Uh, and just based off our initial barrier analysis, it is very apparent uh, that you have diversity at the lower grades, the lower ranks within the military. And as you go up the ranks, you know, diversity is- It starts is, to disappear. Absolutely. And, and so with, with how we're using that underrepresentation framework uh, and also our maturity model, this is a way for us to continuously assess barriers and equity to really see how we can move the needle. This is not the Department of the Navy putting quotas in place, not at all. This is a means for us to provide a common operating picture of data so that leaders, civilian and military, uh, can make informed decisions, employment decisions uh, moving forward while linking all of these things to culture. You know, Anselm, you had said one time that, uh, that you want to move the conversation beyond representation. Explain that. So I, I think uh, as, we look at represent, as we look at diversity, equity, inclusion, um, a lot of times it starts at representation uh, because that seems to be the first thing. And it, it's an important part of it. However, um, if we only stay at representation and we don't get to full participation, uh, representation without participation is still exclusion. And what we want to drive is inclusion. So what does that mean? It means that you know we have to ensure that there is a policy framework in place, that there is an understanding of the value that diversity brings. Because in, in a lot of instances, part of the narrative is that you know we have diversity and um, we want to institute quotas, or we want to uh, we want to have we just want to put people in place just for representation's sake, and without a defined purpose, then that becomes counterproductive. And 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 so we need to ensure that leaders understand the value, that there's a framework in place where people could have choice as they optimize their talent and they be of, in service to the nation. Mimi, this is, this is why I thought it was important when you asked about diversity, equity, and inclusion that you have to include meritocracy in the conversation. And when you look at the underrepresentation framework that we're presenting, uh, it allows us to present underrepresentation as an equity issue, uh, not quotas. Uh, again, so I just thought that, that was very important to kind of bring those points up. All right. Well, gentlemen, we've got to leave it at that. Thank you so much, yeah. both of you, for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Up next, NASA has long been a leader in space communication services. Straight ahead on uh, Government Matters, the agency is now looking to industry to develop commercially provided satellite communications. We'll be right back. NASA's Communications Services Project will use commercially provided satellite communications capabilities for NASA missions, the goal being to eventually phase out dependency on NASA-owned and operated communication systems. Eli Nafa is Communications Services Program Formulation Manager at NASA. Eli, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Thank I appreciate you having me. So where did the idea of the Communications Services Program come from, and what's its purpose? 
Uh, the communication services program was formed uh, officially in 2020. We, we've been working at NASA uh, for uh, the last seven years looking at uh, commercial solutions for uh, space communications. And uh, uh, we officially started formulating the program in 2020. And the reason behind that is, um, you know, the TDRS fleet, we launched the last, uh, uh, don't want to talk in acronyms, uh, tracking and data relay satellite. Uh, we have a system of geosynchronous satellites that orbit the Earth and provide continuous communications for uh, space station and, and other missions uh, at NASA. And uh, we launched the last one in the 2017 timeframe. And so eventually the uh, capability for the TDRS constellation will begin to decline. And we needed to, to make a decision whether we were going to uh, continue with the government owned and operated systems or go with uh, commercial systems. Based on the, the studies that we've done, uh, we believe that industry is ready and capable to provide those services to us commercially. And so the communication services program was formed to uh, investigate that, to demonstrate the feasibility of that, and, and to develop an acquisition strategy for, for buying those services in the future. Eli, do you know that this is going to be more cost-effective than NASA having full ownership? Uh, we don't uh, know for a fact. Uh, that's part of what we're doing now. We're, we're about to award a number of demonstrations uh, that will look at uh, the operational constructs, uh, the acquisition models, and the costs associated with uh, providing commercial services. Currently, for the relay in particular, uh, for Spacecom, there is, we can't go out and buy those services today uh, commercially. Where we would be one of many buyers. So what we feel is we need to stimulate the market, um, work with industry, partner with them to develop uh, that market and capability. And, and then uh, once that's done, we believe that the costs will come down for NASA. And you know, there's a, there's a lot of infrastructure that NASA has to maintain. So getting out of the business of maintaining the infrastructure where industry can do it, um, and, and then leveraging the innovation that's out there uh, with industry, I think, um, you know, will benefit NASA greatly and allow us to focus on science and exploration. I wanted to ask you about infrastructure because how would it work for these satellites to be commercially operated instead of being operated by NASA? Is Will there be interoperability problems? Um, interoperability uh, is a concern for NASA. It really uh, boils down to reliability of service and, and flexibility, especially for long duration missions. In particular, uh, you know, missions tend to, some of our missions tend to go up to 15 years. And so you don't typically have a service contract for, for 15 years of services. And so the, the ability to, to switch or uh, like in the cell phone industry, roam between service providers is, is definitely desirable. At this point, I, I think what we wanna do is just determine what services can be available, what we can go out and purchase, how much that's gonna cost. Once we've created a market, 
I think industry will will work to uh, to develop interoperability because it'll be in their interest to be able to provide that type of flexible service, just as it was in the cell phone industry. So yeah, it's a concern, but at this point, I think you know we're we're taking. Um, the first steps are really to establish the market. So how do you work with private companies? Are they involved from the beginning in the requirements phase? Do, do they work with you on that? Yeah, the, um, in the, we've been working with industry for a number of years. Um, we recently had a, uh, in 2019 timeframe, we had a, a broad area announcement. and We actually worked with eight different industry teams to look at how they would do commercial services. And so um, we're going to be working with them. We'll be awarding some uh, some agreements here in the next couple months uh, to work directly with them, basically to look at what it takes to do end-to-end -end, um, operational service. Uh, and so they'll be developing it from the beginning all the way to the end. The, the interesting aspect of it is what we're doing is we're asking them to tell us what they would like to provide based on their interests and capabilities. We're providing references of what services we're currently uh, providing to our missions today so that they can benchmark that. And, and those are similar to any other uh, space-based user. So, so industry is taking that and they're looking at what their capabilities are and what their business interests are and coming back and telling us this is how they want to do it. So we would expect that they would do things a little differently than we will. Uh, and that's a good thing. And then once we determine what those operational constructs will be, we'll be working with our missions to make sure that um, it's compatible with our missions and that the, the operations concepts and operational paradigms that we have for our missions are, are able to adapt to the commercial services. All right. Well, Eli, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to have you. Okay, Mimi. It's a pleasure. Have a good day. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers 
through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.